There's a message at the top of the page that makes me clap every time I read it, helping you master the best of what other people have already figured out. Felix, that's how we stop wasting time and stop reinventing the wheel. Sharpen the axe before you start chopping down the tree, or it's Einstein's advice about spend more time defining the problem than working on the solution. Those who don't know history, doomed to repeat it, don't be that enabler. I think we can do better. Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. Our guest in this week's episode is a sales enablement pioneer. With over 30 years of experimenting with ways to increase sales effectiveness, he has paved the way for what is known as sales enablement today. He's extremely generous in the way he shares his knowledge, which is reflected in his over 200,000 LinkedIn followers and his best-selling book, The Building Blocks of Sales Enablement. In this episode of the State of Sales Enablement, we speak to Sparks IQ's VP of Sales Effectiveness Services, Mike Kunkel. Mike, thank you so much for joining today. Felix, you're very welcome. I'm excited to be here. So, Mike, I think you're one of the very few people that I have come across that have, when I first saw your profile, about 100,000 LinkedIn followers. And that's quite the number. But I think you are the first person with that sort of follower number where I thought, really, only 100,000? Because the content you put on to LinkedIn and the comments that you leave on people's posts are so elaborate and so valuable that I really think you share more value than most other people on LinkedIn. So I want to start by saying thank you for uh, contributing so much and being so generous with your knowledge. Well, it's incredibly kind of you to say thank you. It's actually 214,000 people on LinkedIn. And if you had told me that that would be the case a couple of years ago, I probably would have asked the bartender to cut you off and take your keys away. <laughs> it seems very surreal to me, but I'm grateful for the uh, followers and fans and connections on LinkedIn and have a lot of fun there sharing things and learning things. And it's a give and take for sure. Just so people who might not be following you, the few people that are not following you, who might not be familiar with your background, what has been your sales enablement journey and how did you get into sales enablement and what do you do now? Okay, well, that's a whole story. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. Let me start. I'll give you a little tour of the early days because there are some big dot connections that really shaped my career. First of all, and it is an important preamble, I went to music school. I was a pro musician for a few years, and I spent a lot of time crammed into a little practice room with a stand and an instrument by myself and a lot of time in band practice. And I mention that because the concept of what we now call deliberate practice really greatly influenced my career in sales and, and sales enablement. And then I stepped away from music as a career choice and felt kind of rudderless. And so I, I answered an ad in the paper, the morning call in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and sort of accidentally got into sales. So my first gig was working for an entrepreneur. I was doing inside sales inbound, answering the phone, and I was absolutely horrible. But the owner saw something in me, God bless him, and uh, he trained me, he coached me, he mentored me, which was a second huge influence that shaped my career, which is the understanding and importance of training and coaching. 
And as you might imagine, right, I was practicing like crazy. I, from my music background, I audio taped myself. I videotaped myself. I joined Toastmasters. I took the Dale Carnegie course. And I was driving around in my car listening to tape sets so much that I could actually talk along with them. And I applied everything that I learned as a musician in practice to help me succeed in this crazy new job I had. And it worked. Right, I got really good. I graduated to outbound sales. And in six months, I landed a multi-million dollar account that fed that small business for years. I actually ended up managing that company for the owner. He became sort of an absentee owner. And I learned a lot about running a small company. But I eventually realized you don't get promoted to owner. So I got into corporate America a few years after that. And I went back into a frontline sales role to do that. And then I got promoted to run the office the next year, and we blew the doors off that year. And it was because we role-played constantly, and I gave every one of my employees a dedicated prospecting day every week, and every single day, either in the morning or at lunch, sometime during the day, we took a break together, the team and I, and we role-played and practiced. And by the next year, we had grown 600% year over year, and they asked me if I wouldn't go into training and to teach other people what we had done. And so that was 1991. I was thin and I had hair and that's how the whole thing started for me. And then the next big influence was working for leaders at this company who gave me a ton of latitude for what to do, but they absolutely demanded results and a return on investment. And look, this was my first training role, so I didn't know that that actually wasn't common. I just thought, well, this is how it is. So in, in that role, I learned pretty quickly that sales training alone just didn't move the needle enough. So I started reading everything I could get my hands on, and I started trying all sorts of stuff at work. It was kind of like a, a learning laboratory for me to figure out how do I actually make an impact. So eventually, with all this stuff I was reading, and I joined the ASTD at the time, American Society for Training and Development. Today it's ATD, the Association for Talent Development. I joined ISPI, which is the International Society for Performance Improvement. And I think they were just the National Society for Performance Improvement back then. But I'm reading their magazines and I'm reading books they recommend. And I came across this concept of human performance technology, or HPT, in performance consulting. In reading this stuff, and I'm sort of, people think that, you know, Kunkel must be a great sales guy. I, you know, I got good because of what I went through to do it, but it's not a natural wiring for me. I'm more of the analytical guy who sits in the corner and takes the toaster apart and figures out how to put it back together and make it work better. And so I was really hooked at all this geeky stuff with HPT and performance consulting. And here we are probably about 25 years later, and I've worked for startups, SMBs, middle market firms, a bunch of Fortune 50 companies, all in roles dedicated to improving sales performance. And fortunately, because of all this stuff I was doing, getting great results. And my experiences helped me formulate what I call the building blocks of sales enablement, with systems thinking and cross-functional collaboration. And I finally sat down and put all that down on paper and published a book. So that's sort of how I got started and the journey I took and what brought me to this point to be here talking to you. Yeah, what an amazing journey. 
it's always interesting to hear from sales enablement professionals what their backgrounds are and how they got into it. And I think your journey is definitely a reflection of the kind of systems thinking you're constantly displaying when you talk about sales enablement. And I've also read your book and I think you are very concise and very specific in the way you describe those different building blocks. So just for people who haven't come across your book yet, like what are the building blocks of sales enablement? Because you initially spoke a lot about training, but what other building blocks are there? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I, I got into training first and then I figured out all this other stuff that kind of comes together with it to move the needle. So the building blocks are really a framework that includes a dozen performance levers that you can pull to get sales results. And we'll talk about them individually quickly, but these performance levers, these blocks are tied together by systems thinking and cross-functional collaboration and communication. And then in some cases, some organizations do sales support services. And the blocks are the things that you need to do in the systems or how you implement the blocks to get repeatable, replicable, and predictable results. So, for example, it all starts with block one for me, which is buyer acumen, or a really deep understanding of our, our buyers and customers, the market, who they are, what are their roles and goals, and something I call coin op, or their challenges, opportunities, impacts of those, the needs they create, the outcomes they want, and the priority of those needs and outcomes. And so it's basically building great personas, but also including the metrics that matter to them, the ways that they're measured, any emotional buying factors, their buying process, and more. And having that buyer acumen or that foundation of your ICP allows you to create buyer engagement content to attract the right buyers and then help them along the journey to make a good purchase decision. And then it helps you create the playbooks in sales support content to help your reps sell to them. Those are the first three blocks right out of the gate, buyer acumen, buyer engagement content, and sales support content. The next three blocks are sales hiring, sales training, and sales coaching. No surprises in there. But all three of those have very specific systems that support them in ways to implement them that will help you get the best possible results out of your hiring, training, and coaching efforts. The next three are sales process, sales methodology, and sales analytics and metrics. And again, no surprises there, although sometimes, as you know, Felix, process is not always owned by sales enablement, analytics and metrics, not always owned by sales enablement. But I set that whole, where does this sit thing aside, just to say, these are the blocks that need to be in place. And whether the enablers are doing the work or whether they're cross-functionally collaborating to get that work done and ensure it's right for the buyers and the sales team, doesn't matter to me. I don't get into the ownership thing of rev ops or revenue enablement or sales enablement or marketing ops. The work just needs to get done to support the sales force and supporting the customers. So process methodology, sales analytics and metrics. And the last three blocks then are sales technology and tools, sales compensation, rewards, and incentive systems, and sales manager enablement, which is huge on its own, right? And it does have its own system dedicated to it as well, but it is one of the blocks we have to get that right. So those 12 blocks then are supported by 
what I call the sales system, sales hiring, sales readiness, sales training, and sales management, which does include sales coaching. And then it's also about the cross-functional collaboration and communication. So the communication, both being the single point of contact in most cases with the sales team. So the communication to the sales team is done on a regular cadence. People know where they're going to find things. Announcements and information follows a certain format that's easy to absorb, maybe even info mapped, right? But sales enablement should be that point of contact to the sales force and also be doing really great communication across the organization with those collaborators with whom they should be building their sales enablement charter. And then the last, the last part, while it's not something that I see done everywhere, it is done in some of the premier world-class organizations or the ones that are large enough to support it, and that is sales support services. And that would be things like RFP support, presentation support, developing presentations or helping customize them, maybe research support to research customers or some of the contacts and executives that we're reaching out to, and even coaching services. And I hope those coaching services primarily are aimed at managers, but sometimes sales enablers do step in and help coach with reps as well. So those are the dozen building blocks with the systems thinking and cross-functional collaboration and communication and possibly sales support services. And as they say, Felix, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> that's right. No, I love it. I think you've got all bases covered there by the sounds of it, of any kind of sales enablement scenario you could possibly want to develop within an organization. But especially for those smaller businesses or business leaders and sales leaders and smaller businesses that might be listening that are just about to embark on their sales enablement journey, like which building blocks should they really be focusing on? Like what's a good starting point? Well, it's a great question, right? Because what I described probably seems like an elephant. And the old joke is, how do you eat an elephant? one bite at a time. So I'll do a two-part answer here. Part one, officially, I always recommend start with a gap analysis. Do a situation assessment. I suggest moving through the blocks, assessing each one. Doesn't have to be deep and painful, right? But how are you doing with each of these blocks? And figure out what's in place today, how well are you doing, What's good enough for now? I, I actually coined an acronym, G-E-F-N, I call GEFN for good enough for now years ago, because I, I was working at a startup at the time. And man, if we tried to do all of this stuff, we would have just exploded. So sometimes you have to start with what's good enough for now, and then where are your biggest gaps? Then you can start to think about, okay, how do I prioritize to close these gaps? And you can do that based on what you think will best support your company's current strategic and tactical plans, working very closely with a sales leader. What are their primary goals for the year? And then which of the building blocks would best support those plans? In general, that's sort of a great performance consulting starting point to get started. You do a gap analysis, you find the biggest gaps, you try to sync those gaps to the current objectives, and you can start to create a phased plan. Now, I said there was a two-part answer here, right? So part two is sort of a disclaimer around that. The one exception 
to the gap analysis rule is buyer acumen. If you are not rock solid with buyer acumen, you absolutely need to address that first, in my opinion. You have to start with your buyers, start with your market, start with your ICP, or all of the downstream work that you're going to do from there could end up being misaligned or a lot less effective. So start with that and then make your progress from there based on your gap analysis and how you're prioritizing. And you can create a phased plan. I see this done and I recommend it myself all the time. Now, let's work on this block. We know that we're not creating enough buyer engagement content to either attract the right buyers to us based on the problems that we solve and that they have, or perhaps we're not creating enough varied content throughout the opportunity management cycle to help the various personas who may have different interests and different exit criteria to help them understand the ways that we can solve their problems or the things that matter to them. And so if that's a big gap, you could map out your personas and their buying process and the exit criteria, and you could start to create a content plan for buyer engagement content and get people working on that until you plug that hole. Now, that requires probably product marketing if your organization has that, at least marketing, you know, and involves some of the sales folks or the sales team. Enablement should sort of oversee that and make sure that the reps are getting what they need based on what the buyers need. But while that's happening, there are probably some other things that you could be doing that don't impact those very same people. Maybe it would be something around process or methodology or making sure you're setting some benchmarks in place that you want to measure against, like what's our raw sales productivity today and what's our sales velocity or the speed at which we're producing revenue over a given time period or what's our win rates, and then put something in place to tackle whatever the biggest problems are there. But by starting with knowing what your benchmarks are, so as you measure the results of initiatives that you put in place, you can see what's moving the needle and what's not. And I think that's far too often missing too, right? We don't get benchmarks or foundational metrics in place so that as we do things, sort of like A-B testing and marketing, right? As we do things, we can see what's actually working and moving the needle, or we can step back and pivot so it does work and move the needle. So I, I know that's probably a long answer to a simple question, but I think it's really based on gap analysis, getting buyer acumen in place first if that's missing, and then figuring out step-by-step step what you want to tackle. I hope that helps. That's awesome. In terms of the measurement, I mean, that's really placed to something that I see in sales enablement forums over and over again. One thing I've heard you call that out in other podcasts as well, is that a lot of organizations continuously reinvent the wheel, right? Especially because there's no formalized education path for sales enablement professionals yet. There's no body of common knowledge that is generally accessible and easily accessible. Mm -hmm. How can sales enablers stop reinventing the wheel and cover more ground in their profession? Well, that's a great setup because this is a hot topic for me. So that's perfect. So look, other than advancements in science and technology, there's very little under the sun in business or performance improvement that's new, right? The human brain, people, behavior, and organizations all tend to evolve very slowly, even though we're all screaming about the pace of change and how rapidly things are changing. It's not necessarily the humans who are evolving that quickly. 
I was doing what we call sales enablement today back in 1991 because I did realize that training alone wasn't enough. So it's sort of amusing to me sometimes, Felix, that we think we're all doing this new stuff in sales enablement. And there's that old quote about if you don't understand history, you're doomed to repeat it. And that's something that I see happening a lot. So let's look at that for a second. In reality, there is so much that has come before us. It reminds me of the Galileo quote, right? If I've seen further, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. There's organization development, organization effectiveness, organization design, organizational behavior, industrial and organizational psychology. And by the way, those are all things you can actually study and get a university degree in. Then we've got Six Sigma, Lean Sigma, total quality management, business process management, human performance technology, performance consulting, and change management, on and on. And you can get certifications in most of those. There is no single sales enablement body of knowledge like there is for project management, right? The PM Bach at the Project Management Institute is the project management body of knowledge. We don't have that. So we have to make a purposeful effort to get out there and learn these things. We need to stop acting like we're figuring these things out for the first time in history, you know, like we're sitting there with a chisel and stone and we're hammering out a wheel, and study the history of organizational performance improvement. Listeners, you, you should do an internet search for evidence-based management, and then go check out the Center for Evidence-Based Management, check out the Oxford Review, check out Farnham Street, which I think is brilliant, and if you go to the Farnham Street homepage, which very simply is fs.blog, there's a message at the top of the page that makes me clap every time I read it, helping you master the best of what other people have already figured out. Felix, that's how we stop wasting time and stop reinventing the wheel. Sharpen the axe before you start chopping down the tree, or it's Einstein's advice about spend more time defining the problem than working on the solution. Those who don't know history, doomed to repeat it, don't be that enabler. I think we can do better. That's awesome advice. There's resources that our listeners can take advantage of straight away. So thank you for sharing those. In terms of the organizations that you come across that fail with sales enablement, what do they have in common? What, what do they do wrong? <laughs> How long do you have, Felix? Let's list a couple, right? Random acts of enablement. I see that all the time, right? Just someone doing something to be doing something. Certainly a lack of top-down support. Something that if, if you're looking for your next sales enablement position somewhere, that's something to really dig into. What's the culture and top-down support for enablement inside the organization? I see a fascination all the time with bright, shiny objects. And I see that a lot with the technology stuff. In one organization that I worked in, I coined the term master of disaster. I think it came out of the Mad Max movies. But I applied it to the company executive or sales leader who constantly overreacts to the last thing that went wrong. And then they derail all these good plans that are in place with some kind of a, a forced left turn. We all got to go over here. It reminds me a lot of when my stepdaughter was growing up, she played peewee soccer. And when the girls were young enough, they had no concept of position on the field. Wherever the ball rolled, all these ponytails were following it. 
and I see that a lot in organizations. Something goes wrong, and this master of disaster like takes all the ponytails in, in that direction. There's a great saying, right? If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Enablement needs a great charter. And by the way, we call it a sales enablement charter today. I used to just call it my department's strategic plan and tactical plans, right? But you need a great charter with the people that you're going to collaborate with cross-functionally. You need to get alignment. You need to put smart plans in place. You need to execute with discipline. All of that to stay on track requires top-down support because you need focus. A friend of mine used to quote someone, I don't know where it came from, but he says, focused attention beats brilliance every time. And assuming that any two plans are both directionally correct, a C plan, well executed, will usually beat an A plan that's poorly implemented. So lack of alignment, lack of focus, poor execution, lack of executive support, these things will kill an enablement program's effectiveness pretty quickly. I also see a lot of misalignments of problems and solutions. One common example is trying to use training to solve problems that it won't solve. So training is the right solution to a performance problem when someone doesn't know what to do, why to do it, and how to do it. If they know what, why, and how to do something, retraining them is absolutely not going to produce a better result or fix the problem. The last thing I'd offer is just running initiatives and projects randomly without regard for solving or addressing any type of specific performance issue. I, I see a lot of that. So those are some of the reasons I see that organizations and practitioners struggle with getting results out of sales enablement. That's awesome. I think that's common issues I also see in the organizations that I work with. So it's definitely spot on in terms of my experience as well. But one other thing that I also see happening is that they want to get too many things done at once. Mm -hmm. And I think that's especially problematic considering the conversations that are going on in market now around revenue enablement. Like suddenly it's not only sales enablement, but revenue enablement. And suddenly the organizations that didn't have focus in the first place have even extended their focus and want to cover even more ground. What are your thoughts on revenue enablement and that whole move to involving customer success now in the enablement space? Well, I'm mixed on that. I'm not a fan of the name personally, but depending on how it's defined, I'm a big fan of the concept. So when someone says revenue enablement, if they mean cross-functional collaboration and alignment across marketing, sales, and customer success or service, and, and that's in support of how everyone's going to help the buyers and customers achieve their desired outcomes, and based on that, how you produce as much profitable revenue as possible, hey, I'm all in. I think that's phenomenal. If they're talking about how those internal functions, marketing and customer success or support, need to be enabled in the same way as sales, I'm not so sure that I'm bought into that. Now, let me explain that because I, I don't want to get darts thrown at me next time I go out in public. I'm obviously a fan of marketing customer success and they both deserve outstanding training and support. But it'd be hard to convince me, Felix, that, that they need to be enabled in the same way as the sales team. The sales team is like the Olympic athletes of the corporate world or the astronauts of business. It's harder to hire the right ones. It's harder to train them. And the sellers and frontline sales managers have what I think are the toughest jobs out there other than maybe the C-suite. 
They need training, role plays, feedback, coaching, messaging, process, methodology, tools, technology, support systems, and more. When I hear that we think we need to do that for other departments, I always wonder what happened to the training department and if they're asleep at the wheel or how long the CFO is going to tolerate that kind of an investment without it delivering a significant ROI. So on one side, when we're talking about the cross-functional collaboration and ensuring that handoffs are phenomenal and that everyone is focused around the customer, that to me is perfect. Why we're calling that revenue enablement, I'm not so sure. But however you want to define things, are we really enabling revenue? I'm not so sure. I don't think so. But I have the same struggle actually with sales enablement. I'm just stuck on that name because it's been around. We have over 10,000 people now, according to Paul Krajewski, who tracks this, who actually have that title on LinkedIn. So it seems funny to me that a point that we're actually starting to get some real traction in spreading out into other verticals, that now we want to change the name. Commercial enablement or sales force enablement probably for me make a little bit more sense because you are enabling your sales force. Bob Britton and I were talking at the ATD Cell Conference and we were starting to think that maybe we ought to just call it enablement and then enable each of the roles as, you know, as effectively or based on what they really need. Buying enablement, I could actually live with that because no matter what function you're working in, you're actually trying to enable the buying journey or the buying process and buyers making decisions. But I don't like buyer enablement because we're not enabling the buyers. We don't really do that either. We're not enabling them, but we're enabling the process of buying. So that one would make sense to me. But for the most part, I try to leave the name stuff out of what I do and talk about and try to get the function and the results right. I think we all need to spend a little less time figuring out what we call ourselves and more time focused on getting results. So I don't know if any of that will make me unpopular this week, but I think I'll live through it. That's true. I think... What I also see a lot is that organizations call what they're doing sales enablement, even though it's those random acts of enablement that you're referring to. Mm -hmm. It's only that one training session once a year, or it's a point solution that is being introduced from a technical point of view. So I think what I'm really missing in the terminology is a clear definition of the strategic and the deliberate side of things. Right. But yeah, as you said, it's probably worthwhile focusing more on delivering results and actually doing the work effectively rather than figuring out the terminology. So from your point of view, you've worked in sales enablement effectively since the 90s. What are your thoughts on the future of sales enablement, considering where it's come from and how much ground we've covered already and what sort of advancements we've made in certain areas? What do you think is next for sales enablement? Well, for me, Felix, my biggest and greatest hope for enablement is that we make a full evolution to what I consider performance consulting, that we get the groundwork in place to get to the formal maturity model, whether it's my building blocks, whether it's Tamara's diamond, whether it's Roderick's blueprint, whether it's Corey's playbooks, whatever system you endorse and use and you're going to put in place, get the framework and groundwork laid to get to that formal level, and then start to evolve to becoming an internal performance consultant. We know from research that enablement done at the formal maturity model does positively impact win rates and quota attainment. That's been proven in, I think, three or four different studies I've seen in the last two years. 
but there is a higher level of maturity and effectiveness. It's often referred to as dynamic or adaptive. I've recently seen strategic. I'm not sure whether that's a misnomer, but dynamic or adaptive, I like. And to get there, it requires the foundation of the building blocks and the systems and to lay that foundation. But then you can add performance consulting practices to evolve to the adaptive level to really foster a practice of analytics, targeted continuous improvement, and the tracking of that against benchmarks and lifting organizational performance consistently over time. To me, that's my highest and best hope for the professional sales enablement or whatever we end up calling it. That's awesome. Mike, we're running out of time. So thank you so much for joining today. If people want to connect with you, continue the conversation or learn more from you through your content, where can they do that? Well, it's pretty easy to find me on LinkedIn. It's in forward slash Mike Kunkel, spelled K-U-N-K-L-E. You can find the building blocks of sales enablement right on Amazon, either in paperback or Kindle. And if you type the words Mike Kunkel and sales into Google, I think I've been around long enough that I own something like the first three or four pages. So it's pretty easy to hunt me down. I love it. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you, Felix. It was a blast to talk to you. And I appreciate all the, the great work you're doing with this podcast and sharing information from so many different angles and so many smart people. I've enjoyed listening to many, and I really appreciate being here. Thank you, Mike. You've been listening to the State of Sales Enablement podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe in your favorite podcast player. If you want to learn more about sales enablement, you'll find a growing number of articles, videos, and templates specifically for enterprise technology businesses at kruegermarketing.com learn. That's K-R-U-E-G-E-R marketing.com learn.